So, you know, for those of you who do not know, and I know it's a little hot for me up here, especially today, um, for those of you who do not know, this is not my normal Sunday morning look, right? Um, and I want you to know it's never going to be. Just want you to know that right up front. Um, but I was, as we were thinking about this series, we were thinking about a few of the things, and I just kind of went back to about a six-year period of my life where I wore a suit every single day, okay? Now, you might, you might be like, well, whatever, Matt, I'm a banker, I do that all the time. Like, good for you, okay? You chose that, all right? Anyway, I just want you to know that for me, it was an adjustment, and I have really loved not wearing a suit every single day. And when I began to think about, like, when you see suits and those kind of things and formal attire, it really usually does happen around three things, right? You're, one is, like, you're celebrating something. It could be a gala or a benefit or, you know, like, kids do it for homecoming and, and uh, prom and, and those kind of kind of formals. You'll see them in suits and tuxes and those kind of things. Great. Uh, if you've had the opportunity, I've been here for several years. Uh, if, uh, if I've married you, not, not directly, but if I've officiated uh, your wedding or someone close to you, uh, you've seen me in a suit because we often will do this for weddings uh, as part of the celebration again for weddings. But the third place that usually you'll see something like this or you yourself will have to find your suit uh, to pull out is where? Anybody want to take a guess? Funerals, right, then funerals. Now, if you didn't know this, my six-year window of time, uh, I was a funeral director. That is my professional education, mortuary science. That may be brand new information to some of you. Some of you guys already know that. Um, but I'm telling you, I mean, every single day, this is how I interacted with people is in, you know, some matching suit with a bunch of the other funeral directors and people that worked in our home. I had a suit, a closet full of suits and ties. And I mean, at two in the morning, I'd have to, I get sometimes get a call and I'd have to take a shower and put my whole suit on and go to a hospital or go to somebody's home uh, to, to deal with a family member that had just lost someone. And so this was very, again, this was something very, uh, for me, one of those times in my life that I look back on and I learned several lessons, uh, especially when it comes to the series that we're doing, which is why we wanted to talk about this, uh, not just finding hope and loss, but the reality of loss in our life. Because, you know, for us, it's been a couple hundred years. Uh, Queen Victoria, I think it's from the Western world. It's kind of like a, she wore black after her husband died and there became sort of this sort of official kind of dark uh, representation to deaths and funerals. And so it carried over into the Western world for the last few hundred years, which is why a lot of times this is kind of a normal, common thing for funerals. Now, lots of cultures where something maybe special for funerals. Some places do it in very colorful ways. Other places do it, but there's usually something uh, that's significant in terms of what they look like and how they represent themselves as they respect the family and respect the dead um, uh, in there. But I'll, I'll be honest, it's interesting for me because again, my years in the funeral home, um, I, I really did begin to learn a lot about how people deal with the reality of loss. And to me, What's, it's hard because, again, I was raised as a Christian, and so I, I kind of had always kind of heard and had a very biblical perspective um, to loss, especially when it came to death. Um, but in the funeral home, I, I oftentimes would, would meet people, and I would, I would start dealing with a family, and there was a huge difference between those who would come in, and they would, experience, they would have sadness and sorrow, the same as you would with anything, losing a parent, losing a family member. Um, but there were some people that I would deal with that they could barely get up the, that day. They could barely move. They could barely function. 
And when it came to walking through even just funeral stuff and walking through the time uh, of having to sort of celebrate the life of someone, because they did not have faith and because they did not have a, a biblical worldview and because they did not understand who Jesus was in their life, they had no hope. They, 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 they had to walk through grief and loss with a sense of hopelessness. And it was sobering. It was tragic to engage those families and try to serve them well, but all the while, look on the outside looking in, just watching that happen um, with that. And so I, it's been an interesting thing to study, especially when it comes to loss, because we in the Western world kind of have a loss aversion. You know, we will do almost anything to not experience loss. Matter of fact, psychologists call it a, it's, you can be, it can become a cognitive bias where you will do, you will do, you will believe any lie you need to believe in order to not, in order to not set your life up to experience any pain or any loss. Why? Because psychologists say that in our minds, we think, we see the loss and the pain associated with loss as two to five times worse than the joy of gaining anything. Right? Like we just see it that much worse. So there are people just live their whole life with this sort of loss aversion. So our first scripture for the day is Ecclesiastes 3. If you'll turn uh, to your copy of God's word, Ecclesiastes 3, you can again look at your phone. Uh, it won't be on the screen. And you can follow along. This is the words of Solomon kind of setting us up for the understanding that there are seasons in life in which loss is going to happen. It's, it's, it's the most natural thing we could expect, as well as many other things. And so here's where he begins in these eight verses. He says, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. As we see this is going to be the, one of the most common things that will unite the human race together in every culture, no matter where you live in the world, is that you are going to experience loss of some sort, in some way. And we, we actually chose the theme verse for this series uh, where Paul is really addressing the church about understanding how we grieve and how we experience loss. Here's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen and what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have, say those two words out loud with me, no hope. We, we want you to understand, because you have to remember in the early church, uh, they were all expecting Jesus to come back. Like they were kind of like, you know, he's running a little late. Right? They were a little bit like he's running behind. And, and they were worried because grandma and grandpa who saw Jesus, who walked maybe with, with the early disciples, had passed away. And these early and young Christians were coming up and they're like, what happens to them? 
You know, they, did, they didn't, you know, Jesus didn't make it back in time to, to, you know, to kind of redeem things and to do all the things he said he was going to do. And Paul wants to share with the church, yes, but, but we, we don't, we, we still going to experience death. We're still going to experience this loss, but we are not going to grieve like people who have no hope. And, and again, today is just the beginning of this series, and so I can't go too deep into a lot today, but I am going to touch base as we introduce this topic of how do we find hope in loss, especially when it comes to how we grieve and how we all experience grief, maybe differently, but also somewhat the same. Here's uh, something you may have seen before or heard of before. These are called the five stages of grief. Nod your head if you've heard that before or seen that before. Maybe you have close experience uh, with this. But this is something that psychologists um, have come up with and so, uh, really just to help people walk through the process, if you will, of experiencing loss. And, and grief, the, the kind of grief we're talking about here, again, you, you're going to go through these. It's not linear. It's not like one, two, three, four. Um, but you're going to experience these seasons, these stages. There's denial, uh, the belief or denial of the actual reality of the loss. There's anger and frustration that may be directed at someone else, maybe directed at you, maybe directed at someone else, maybe directed at themselves. Um, there's bargaining, where you're sort of, again, believing anything you need to believe, bargaining with a higher power to, you know, to change the outcome or to not experience the actual pain of the loss. There's depression. That comes, oftentimes that comes at the, when you begin to feel the full weight of the reality of loss that experiences profound sadness and loneliness and despair. And then acceptance. And this is often definitely viewed as the last step, if you will, of, of grief because it's when you come to terms with not just the reality of loss, but it becomes a part of your life. It becomes part of something you navigate life forward with that loss sort of uh, integrated into um, your life. Just going back to just the definition, if you will, of grief and grieving, it is the emotional process of experiencing any and all loss, where we experience hurt, sorrow, distress, suffering. Because you can grieve, and it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's died. Grief is something that's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to walk through grief. Anytime we experience any and all kinds of losses, uh, in our life, it could be the loss of your health. That could be your health fails and maybe completely alters and changes the way the rest of your life looks and you will grieve that loss. Uh, it could be a job or a career path or something you had planned on and put a lot of stock in. It could be relationships. It could be moving. Big moves in people's lives often create a great deal of loss and grief for you and your family. Um, it could be dreams and desires kind of hopes and plans that you've had and you come to a realization at some point that those dreams are gone or maybe those hopes and desires won't happen and you have to walk through the grieving and the grief that comes uh, with that. But I want us to just look back at the words there. It is an emotional process, okay? And, and we can all think about the people in our lives um, you can think about your circle of friends who, who maybe lean towards the emotional spectrum of feeling those emotions and expressing them well. You guys all know who I'm talking about. You know, they cry at everything, right? There's happy tears and there's sad tears and there's everyday Tuesday tears. You guys know what I'm talking about? Or, or just the, the range of emotion. They can go from super highs to super lows and, and, and kind of, you know, within, even sometimes within the same day, within the same afternoon, 
They just have that, they kind of lean into those emotional uh, expressions and experiences. And then you might have people in your life, listen, that you're, you're convinced they might not have an emotion in them at all, right? At all. And we're not just talking about the men here, but we're talking about people you look at and you're just like, goodness gracious, like you're a robot, you know? You don't feel anything. And, you know, and I just want you to hear, like, it's okay. Uh, I don't want to view either one of those things necessarily as healthy, but I do want to say that, you know, sometimes your, your, your personality and your temperament will have a little bit to do with how you process and handle these kinds of emotions in your life, which do set you up a little bit. I, I want to say sometimes set you up for failure, especially when you start dealing with grief and loss. Now, we live in a world... I do need to address this for just a second, then we're going to look at the difference between grief and another, another practice. But we live in a world, and you guys know this, that it's been happening for decades, several decades. It's been a very slow changing turn where people have begun to believe that their emotions dictate what is true. Everybody with me? Nod your head if you, if you feel what I'm getting at. So we have a society that actually encourages now and, and kind of supports this culture that if you feel it, then it's true. Not if you feel it, your feelings are real. Okay, they, that's a good thing to support the, the reality of what you're feeling. But, but it kind of goes back to, well, if I feel like, if I feel like I, I, I'm different than what I look like, it must be true. If I feel like this is true, people are against me, that must be true. If I feel like the world has turned on me, that must be true. And so people tend to be ruled by their emotions in our current culture. And everything that is true in their life is relative, hear the word, is relative to how they currently feel. And, I, and, and this is a problem for a lot of people. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, this tends, I've learned through some therapy and, and counseling, this tends, I don't tend to have this particular tendency. And it's because I tend to ignore or deny any feelings I don't like. Everybody with me? Now, don't confuse that for healthy because it's not healthy. But I tend to just ignore or deny any feelings I don't like, which means I tend to not necessarily lean in oftentimes to some of those feelings that would probably be very helpful for me, as my wife would maybe say to you, be really helpful for me in making choices in my life. But I, I tend not to be driven like this, but a lot of people are. And again, as a culture, we're, I really do believe we're setting people up for a disastrous outcome when we've given them the predisposition that, that what they feel is truth, that when they begin to experience loss, they don't know how to deal with it. We have a generation of people that do not know how to experience grief in a healthy way because they've been told everything they feel is true. Now, I want to walk through that just for a minute because we know that that's not true scripturally, but I want to kind of walk us through. Here's a, uh, a quote uh, from a psychologist um, and, a, and a therapist, he says, feelings are like signposts. They can alert us to something, but they are not determinative. We're not at their mercy. We get to examine them for accuracy, then choose for ourselves what we believe about who we are and how, uh, how we will decide to act. Now, I want you to understand, Dr. Barton Goldsmith, he's not a believer. He's just a psychologist. And as many psychologists and therapists who walk people through and navigate these things, they already know this. You cannot let your emotions rule and reign your life. 
And so a lot of times when they're having to help people walk through grief, they have to deconstruct that, that idea that just because they feel it doesn't mean it's true. Because here he is, he's, he's saying the same thing we would believe biblically, but he's just saying it from the psychosis of, you can't view it that way. They are signposts. They are things that sort of will help you, possibly. So here's a term that I found to be really helpful when I was studying, and that's that emotions are very, very real. But they may not be reliable, okay? Now, it can't be in all ways that they're never reliable because a lot of times God will use emotional states to, to point us to things we probably need to pay attention to, that we need to be aware of. But for the most part, we know that's why the greater sign is there. We need to understand that, yes, they are fully real, but they may not be reliable. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do this very well. I, I, don't, I don't know about you. How do you affirm your emotions, validate the emotions that you're feeling without affirming the truth or the conclusions that you draw from those feelings. How do you do it? I'll let you know, I don't do it very well. I don't do it for me, I don't do it for others very well. Matter of fact, when I was studying this, I was looking for the answer and most psychologists and, and, and psychiatrists, they were just like, hey, it's really hard. I was like, no, duh, it's hard. I know it's hard, I went into this knowing it's hard. But basically they had no answer other than the fact that yeah, your feelings are real and you have to be able to feel them and you have to be able to validate your feelings, but you cannot necessarily affirm that that's truth or that the conclusions you draw are true. Now, scripturally, we already see this. This is given to us in scripture. You know, again, God's word just pours out wisdom to us. This is uh, Solomon Proverbs. The first, step, the first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. You all with me? The first one to speak in court sounds right until you start parking, poking holes into the argument. All right, keep going. This is, again, Jeremiah. We're going to look at him in just a minute. Uh, but Jeremiah, a prophet, said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Well, the next verse tells us that God knows. The Lord searches all hearts to examine secret motives. He gives all people their due reward according to what their actions deserve. Jeremiah is basically saying, look, your heart cannot be trusted. It will, believe it or not, lie to you. Your feelings, your emotions will lie to you. Here's uh, again what uh, Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, but do not depend on your own, what's the word? Let's say it like we all read. Okay, ready? Do not depend on what? Your own understanding, which is the way you process how your feelings make you feel. Do not lean on how you've processed that. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. You have to be very, very careful that your, your current reality of truth is not coming from past trauma, from past experiences from the emotions that you've had or the conclusions you've drawn over years of faulty understanding to get you to where you are. Just because you've believed it your whole life doesn't still mean it's true. Everybody with me? You can't lean in your own understanding. You have to seek his will. Matter of fact, one of the phrases I love was, was, was seek guidance over your gut instinct. Seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Seek the guidance of God over your gut over that thing. Now, again, I don't want to discount all emotions and where God might be using them in your life, but you do have to really examine them well. 
So I want to just walk you through the fact that the grieving is a process that everyone is going to experience. You do not get to bypass grief in your life if you're a human being. That's it. Just wanted you to know that. Like, Matt, is this sermon going to be about how to not grieve? Nope. You're going to grieve. It is a process, just like I said, every, and we're going to go through this in the next couple weeks, but it's a process everybody has to go through. However, we are introduced through Scripture to a practice called lament. We're introduced to something through Scripture that is a way, a way of processing our grief called lament and lamenting. Our scriptures uh, have a book, an entire book, called Lamentations. And again, it's Jeremiah, who we just read. Jeremiah wrote an entire book about 600 years before Christ appears. And it was just about the time that um, the Jerusalem itself, all of Jewish people, Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians, and and the Jewish people had all been basically extinguished. They, They were just scattered and he was told some to stay in, 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 the, in the land, and they didn't. They went to Egypt. And I'm just telling you, like, it felt like the end. And so Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet because of his just pouring out his sorrow, he actually writes Lamentations as a way to poetically kind of express the sorrow and the pain and the despair that the Jewish people were feeling at this. At this and I understand this. They were feeling all of this as a consequence of their own sin. Okay, just just remember, the reason that the Jewish people were judged and allowed to be conquered was a consequence of the fact that they weren't following God anymore. It was a consequence. So it doesn't matter that they brought it on themselves, the sorrow and the pain were still just as real. And that was the reason that that Jeremiah was like, we have to lament this so we can grieve well. Okay, so we can grieve properly. At its core, Lamentations acknowledges the inevitability of loss and the depth of human suffering and invites us into a way to experience this in a way that draws us closer to God. Here's uh, the way Paul Miller says it in one of his books about prayer. There's no such thing as a lament-free life. To love is to lament. Why? Because it lets you, you let your heart be broken by something. If you don't lament over the broken things in our world, then your heart begins to shut down. Your living, vital relationship with God dies a slow death because you open the door to unseen doubt and become quietly cynical. Cynicism moves you away from God, but lament pushes you into his presence. So oddly enough, not lamenting leads us to unbelief because reality wins and hope dies. And if you read some of his work, uh, I would even say the, the better phrase is perceived reality wins, right? Because it may not be actual reality because you may feel alone, but you're not alone. But that reality of, that we are experiencing and feeling feels to win in that moment and your hope dies. One th- if you can remember two things about this practice of lament, it allows us space and time to grieve and heal, and it helps us learn to love through pain. It helps us learn to love others and even ourselves through pain. Uh, We have the best example of all, which is Jesus. Jesus himself experienced grief and lament. I want to give you just a few examples before I kind of walk us through lament, but 
Jesus himself experienced this. He experienced it. Um, he was grieving, you know, just even just Jerusalem and all the people of God when they kind of rejected him. And as, they, as he continued to do his ministry, he just continued to say, why do you continue to reject what I'm telling you? He goes through a whole chapter in chapter 23 uh, in Matthew talking about they're just so blind to it. And then he says this, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together, right? As a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. He was grieving and lamenting over the loss of their, their ability to hear the good news and to hear the message he had. Another great moment where we see Jesus in his life kind of going through grief and, and the process and time of lamenting is through the experience of Lazarus dying. Now, you guys who know the story, just remember, Jesus intentionally does not go to Lazarus and lets him die, and then goes to his sisters who are grieving and weeping and, and filled with sorrow. And Jesus, even though Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead, Jesus, get the picture here, he knows it. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. Jesus himself does not stop the process of grief in his own heart or for Mary and Martha. It says Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary, saw the other people wailing with her, and a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled, because he allowed himself to feel, he, even though he knew what he knew, he allowed himself to feel. Where have you put him, he asked, and they told him, Lord, come and see. And then many of you guys remember this passage, maybe you guys, this is the easiest one to me memorize when you were a kid in Sunday school, so you learned this one. Then Jesus wept, right, the shortest verse. Jesus wept. Why? Well, it goes on to say, the people who were standing there, there said, look, see how much he loved him. And that was true. Jesus did love Lazarus, his friend, but Jesus was grieving over death. He was lamenting and grieving over the loss that people like Mary and Martha were having to experience because of this incredible loss of their brother, even though he knew. He was going to raise him. When Jesus got closer to the time of his death, his own death on the cross, he, he, he was going to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, he told them, look, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Please stay here and keep watch with me, he told the three disciples that were with him. And, and I, the best way to say that is like anybody else feels sometimes. It's like I'm, I'm so crushed with despair and grief in my heart that the feeling itself feels like it might kill me right? I don't know if anybody's ever felt that in their life, but it's the feeling itself. Jesus is like, this feeling feels like it's going to kill me because my soul feels the full weight of this. Please come and just pray with me. And here's, uh, this is when he's on the cross at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until about three o'clock. And it said, uh, about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shanathan, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, there are several times that you might see this in Scripture. You might, you might have even said these words yourself. Um, but for us, we look at Jesus and we say, that was not a figure of speech. That was not a, uh, I feel like you're not there, but he really was. 
For everything we know in terms of Scripture, we know that there's a moment. We don't know how long that moment lasted, but we, there was a moment where the communion between God and His Son, this thing we barely understand in terms of the Trinity, was broken for a moment because He wanted His Son to take our sin and pay for it. To experience fully human what He needed to experience to pave the way for our salvation. So He said, I feel like you've abandoned me, and, and that was true. Now, again, not ultimately, but in that moment, it wasn't just a feeling. So before we can get into the next couple weeks, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the four sort of markers, if you will, four key ways in which we can lament, enter this practice of lament and lamenting well in terms of understanding we're going to go through grief, but how can we express that grief? How can we walk through grief while we find hope even in the losses we're going to experience in life. So I'm just going to give them to you all four up front. I'm not going to walk you through this. Is, again, we'll go into more detail in the next couple weeks, but here's the four things. This is kind of a guide to seeing this, even when you read Scripture. To lament is to remain God-focused. And the, the difference here would be that you're not problem-focused. You're not people-focused. You're not even loss-focused is that you're bringing it to God, that it remains kind of a to-God focus, and that you endure through grief, meaning that you're not going to escape it. <laughs> you're not going to escape the bargaining and the anger and the denial and the depression. You're not going to escape it, but you can endure it with Jesus. Enduring it means being honest about it and then discovering hope in the healing. Notice that you're not going to discover hope after you're healed, you're going to discover hope in the process of healing as well as renew your faith in his faithfulness because his, his word says he never changes and his word never changes. So here's what I want to do just as a quick example. I read a couple of psalms. There are some specific psalms that are called the psalms of lament, right? I want you to see this example of these four things just played out in these psalms. This is Psalm 13. It says, oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes, or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. This is a classic example of King David. Right? This is a classic example of David whose heart was a heart after God's own heart. And so here's those four things again. And I just want you to see it as he kind of pours himself out. Like, you know, he's bringing his comments and his stuff with God, to God. Like most of us, let's be honest, we're a lot quicker to put it on social media or to have a conversation with our friends or to bring it up at you know, when our small group gathers together, and we're a lot quicker to sort of commiserate and kind of complain and to kind of pour out our feelings that we believe are somewhat true, and we'll kind of pour this out and kind of write down here, but we never seem to take it to God. We never really bring it to God. And, and sometimes we were raised in churches that you weren't allowed to do that. 
You weren't allowed to sort of, you know, argue with God or, or be angry with God. But the psalmist is very clear, like, God, where are you? Why, why, have, why have you turned away from me? This is David. Why do I feel like you've abandoned me? Now, there's another psalm where David says, the darkness is a closer friend than you are. That's the way it feels. And so here's David, again, God-focused, not problem-focused, not others-focused, but God-focused. And he pours out his heart and the pain and the sorrow that he's feeling. Let me ask you a question, okay? And this is not a trick question. Well, it might be a trick question, but it's not a trick question, all right? Here, here's the deal. Does God know everything you're feeling already? Everybody say it loud, loud. Yes, okay. Does that mean that you don't have to tell God what you're feeling? Yeah, that's a trick question, right? No. Why do we still pour our heart out to God and tell him what we're feeling? It's not for his benefit. We have got to stop treating God like we're giving him information. Like we're informing him of something. He already knows. No, we pour out the way we feel to God because it's for our benefit. It's for our benefit to hear the words, God, why does it feel like you have turned your face from me? And to hear ourselves say that and to go, I don't think that's true. God, I'm, just, I'm telling you how I feel. I feel abandoned. And then to hold that up in light to his word and to hold that up to light to what you might know is true and to cast that against what you already know. But it doesn't mean you don't express it. It doesn't mean you don't share your grief with God. Because that is how we begin to find hope and discover hope as we begin to heal. So I wrote it down this way. This is, I needed to read it because I wanted to make sure that I didn't lose this. The, the practice of lament helps us acknowledge our suffering and to not pretend or deny it doesn't exist. But it helps us cast our eyes beyond the pain. Saying it out loud, getting it out, helps us cast our eyes beyond the pain, especially when, again, it's God-focused, not just complaining. Here's Psalm 130. I'll read this one very quickly. Psalm 130 says, from the depths of despair, O Lord, I call out for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord, pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I am counting on the Lord. Yes, I am counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries long for the dawn. Oh, Israel, I hope, or Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. For he himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. Here's the psalmist basically saying, God, I feel, I feel alone in this, but, but I long for you. So he's put the eyes go past the pain. And, and it's okay to start a prayer with, God, I feel abandoned. I feel lost. I feel alone. And to end your prayer with, but I'm going to choose to sing to you. I'm going to choose to rejoice in you. I'm going to choose to believe that you are good and your love doesn't fail. Are we acknowledging that it felt like it failed? Yes. 
Are we acknowledging that it actually doesn't fail? Yes. This is the practice of lament. And listen, the practice of lament, right, not just grieving, but the practice of lament takes us to our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope. I had to read this verse to close today because it's just, it's just what I feel in my heart. Like it's the ultimate hope. It's the thing we're all longing for. It's the thing our souls and our hearts are desperate for that come from revelation. It's this picture that God gives us. It says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Lord God, the Lord, look, the God's home is with now with his people. He's with us. He's living with them and he will be his people. God himself will be with them. What happens when that happens? Well, he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes and there's going to be, say the words out loud with me, there's going to be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Let's, let's do it again. Okay. Let's, let's read it like we all can read. You guys ready? Like this is the, this is the ultimate hope for us. You ready? He's going to wipe every tear from their eye. There's going to be what? No more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen? Right. That's our ultimate hope. I'm thankful. Look, there's not even going to be any happy crying in heaven. I'm pretty sure about it. He says no more tears. That's what I'm taking the word at his word. No more tears. Right? Not that we won't have emotion, but the joy of us being with Jesus is going to overtake everything. And there's not going to be loss. There's not going to be pain. And there's not going to be sorrow. And yes, in this time, in this life, we will have to walk through loss. You don't get a pass. But it's our ultimate hope. And it's even in this process and this practice of lamenting well that we can discover hope and healing and we can renew our faith with his faithfulness. When we're really honest about accepting the reality of the loss, especially in multiple areas of our lives that we have to feel. I look forward to walking through this series uh, with you guys over the next several weeks. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and just, um, God, how it encourages us. Um, I'm thankful, God, for the the practice of lament. I believe that as your church and as followers, we've probably denied ourselves the health that comes from lamenting and walking through our grief well. And yes, God, we... Nobody enjoys it. Nobody goes, nobody longs for loss. Nobody longs to grieve. And yet, God, it's inescapable for us on this earth to not experience loss of of all sorts and to have to walk through that process. But God, thank you so much that we can remain you focused in that. That we can endure, you know, the depression. We can endure the, the, the denial and the anger and all the stages that we have to walk through as we grieve. And God, we can experience hope even while we're healing. Not once we're healed, but while we're healing. And God, it's your faithfulness that doesn't change. Your love never fails. We put our hope in your word. And we trust by your Holy Spirit, God, you will begin to do this work in us as we begin to learn and encourage others that we are walking with to lament and to grieve well. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.